You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. All right, well, how are you guys doing this morning? Awesome. Well, um, I do want to remind you guys um, to stick around after church today. Uh, we're going to have a business meeting. And we do have some exciting updates on a possible building situation for us. So um, you, you definitely don't want to miss that, if you've, um, certainly if you've uh, been a part of this for a while and, and continue to, to, to be so in the future. Um, don't want to miss that. So um, we'll do that uh, right after the service. Um, so this morning we're going to be back in John chapter 5, if you want to be turning there, John chapter 5. And let me remind you that our, um, our kind of overarching theme in chapter 5 is Jesus the compassionate God. Jesus the compassionate God. Um, now last week we, we started this chapter by looking at the great compassion of Jesus as a model, really, for how we should show that same compassion to those around us. Um, and this was seen in this encounter with a lame man of 38 years uh, by the pool of Bethesda. And it was this encounter that sparked something in the ministry of Christ. It sparked great persecution for Jesus because Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath, right? Uh, verse 16 tells us that it was for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. <clears throat> now this morning we're going to pick up in verse 17 and the great majority of what we're going to read this time um, and, and next time, um, actually David's going to be preaching next week, uh, but then the week after that, uh, the great majority of, of what we're going to um, see in, in, in these verses is Jesus speaking. Um, if you have a red letter Bible, you're going to see a lot of red over the next, next couple of times here. Um, and as he speaks, Jesus, I think, gives maybe the clearest explanation of himself uh, that he gives in the scripture. There are those today who, who would uh, say, in fact, Forrest and I were just talking about an encounter he had this week. Um, there are those today that, that would say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Right? Anybody ever heard that one? Jesus never, never claimed to be God. Uh, me and Forrest and, and David. That's good. Now, you may have talked to somebody and, and, and they're like, well, you know, Jesus, if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness uh, come to your door, um, they would say Jesus is a God, not the God, right? Now, he's not really on the same par as the Father for them. Um, and so... Um, there are those, and it, it's a, a, a lot of people that, that would claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Now, I think we've already debunked that uh, in several points throughout our study in, in the book of John. But if John hasn't sold you yet, just, just wait until you hear what Jesus says uh, during this passage. Uh, this discourse is, is without a doubt... I mean, there, there's no denial here. Jesus, he's making a clear explanation of himself that he is God himself. And what he says is, is shocking, really, especially to the Jews that he's, he's saying it to. And it puts us in a position this morning to, um, as C.S. Lewis uh, once said, we can only draw three conclusions, really, about who Jesus is. He's either a lunatic... Or he's the devil, he's very evil, or he's, he is who he says he is, and, and that's God. Those are really the only three explanations that, that Jesus allows you to have about himself. Jesus, in this section, he gives no room for us to think that he's merely a good moral teacher. There's no room for that in this section. There's no room for us to think that he is a prophet who was sent by God, and that's it. That's all he was. Just, yeah, he's, he's like Elijah. You know, he's, he's another prophet. That's what the Muslims would believe about Jesus. There's no room for that here. Um, Jesus makes it clear that he, he believes himself to be equal with God in at least six ways in this passage. And so if he's not God, 
he's either delusional, he's a delusional lunatic, as C.S. Lewis says, um, and he, he thinks he's God, but, but he's, he's not, he's, he's delusional. Or he's pure evil, knowing that he's not God, but he's saying that he's God. He's saying, making these statements that everyone, um, everyone thinks he's saying um, that he is God. So he's either, he's either a lunatic, he's pure evil, um, or of course we as Christians, we know the truth about Jesus, don't we? And uh, he is in fact God. And uh, there are tremendous implications to that in our lives. So uh, let's go ahead, and if you will, stand with me. We're going to read verses 17 through 30, and, and then we'll dive, in, dive into this. So it says here, But Jesus answered them. Let's back up to 16, actually, so we get a little bit of context. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill Him, because He had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now. And I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son. And shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing, I can can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Let's pray. Father, I, I just ask you to, um, yeah, first of all, I thank you for this church family. Lord, I thank you for this, the time of worship that we've already had this morning. I pray that that would only continue as we open your word. God, I pray that you would give me the words that I stand in need of, Lord, and remove all, all distractions, Father, this morning. And you just be glorified by this, by this word, Lord. Uh, you be magnified and you speak to us uh, the way that you know you need to speak to us this morning. And Father, we, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So six proofs that Jesus is God here in this section um, from the mouth of Jesus himself. And the first proof that Jesus gives here is that he and God the Father are equal in nature. Equal in nature, and that's seen in in verses 17 and 18. Now, remember the Jews here are very upset that Jesus has just healed this lame man on the Sabbath, right? Uh, They couldn't care less that a paralyzed man of of 38 years is now walking, right? We talked about that last week. They don't care about that. They're concerned because Jesus has violated their own made-up rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have taken this opportunity to rebuke the religious leaders for all of their traditions that they held the people to that were not part of God's law. There were lots of them. But he he goes a different route. He doesn't do that. He addresses that at another time. He does address that, but not in this passage. Um, But here, what he says is much more shocking. It's much more shocking, and they are absolutely 
appalled by what he says. I've said this before, but um, one of the teachers that, that I like to listen to, um, he, he always said that, that when we're in danger of missing the point, the, the Pharisees always come to our rescue. When we're in danger of missing the point of what Jesus just said, the Pharisees come to our rescue. We, not being Jewish, sometimes we don't understand the implication of what Jesus is saying. But they get it. Look at verse 18. It says that the Jews sought even more to kill Jesus because He said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. How much clearer can we get? He's equal with God. The Jews understood that, and they wanted to kill Him. So Jesus has just said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, a couple of things about this. First of all, the Jews knew that God still worked on the Sabbath. Now, the Jews didn't work on the Sabbath, but they knew that God worked on the Sabbath and that He did not need the Sabbath. God sustains all of creation by His Word. Amen? Of course He works on the Sabbath. If God were not working on the Sabbath, creation would literally crumble. The Jews know this. They know God works on the Sabbath. On top of that, Isaiah 40, verse 28, it says that God doesn't grow faint, or doesn't faint or grow weary. He doesn't faint or grow weary. God doesn't need rest. The Sabbath was given for man to remind us that, that God had completed His creation in six days and to show us that we do need rest. Right? If you're, if you're living a life with, with no rest, you probably feel that this morning, right? I just need a day of rest. I need a day of rest, right? We need rest. Our bodies can feel it. And God, uh, part of the Sabbath is is showing us, hey, you do need rest. It's also to consecrate that that day to God, to the worship of God and and restoration of our souls. See, worshiping God is, is supposed to be the thing that restores our souls, right? That should be the thing, and that is the thing that restores our souls, but so many times we want to find it in other things. Well, I need, I need to just play video games for eight hours. I'll get my rest then. Yeah. I need to just binge watch this TV show. I'll get my rest then. No. The Word is where we get our rest. Time with Jesus is where we get our rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. But we miss that so often. And we trade in what we could have uh, for something very cheap. Very cheap and temporary. So we need this day of rest. God sure doesn't need this day of rest. So, you know, it's all in fine and dandy that God doesn't need rest. But Jesus says, first of all, that He has been working too. As if He is also not subject to the Sabbath. That's what He claims here. On top of that, um, and this is what really ticks them off, uh, Jesus calls God His Father. Now, Jews didn't do that. Now, collectively, they saw God as their Father. Yes, the Father of the Jewish nation. But for a person, an individual, to say, God is my Father, that was blasphemy for the Jews. They were really ticked off about that. They go from wanting to kill him in verse 16 to really wanting to kill him in verse 18. Right? It says all the more they wanted to kill him because they understood that Jesus was claiming that God was his personal father. Jesus is saying, my father and I, we're we're of the same nature. We're both God. Now, I mean, if Jonah says uh, Josh is his father... What, what conclusions can we draw from that? Well, we're of the same species, right? We're both human, for one thing, right? So when Jesus says, God is my personal Father, the Jews understood that to mean He's saying that He's of the same species as God. He's of the same nature as God Himself, and that's blasphemy to the Jews. 
No one could say that about God the Father for the Jews. So the Jews understood this claim to deity very clearly, and they wanted even more to kill him. Secondly, uh, Jesus is equal in works. That's the second thing here. He's equal in works. This is verse 19. He's already said in verse 17 that his father is working on the Sabbath, and so is he. Their works are equal. Whatever the father's doing, he's doing. But he explains further in verse 19. He says, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. Whatever he does, the son also does in the same way. He does it in like manner, he says. Jesus is saying that he does not and cannot act independently of his father's will. He's incapable of it. He cannot act independently of God the Father's will. Now, that's another huge statement, right? Because I don't know about you, but it's it's not very hard for me to act uh, against God's will that I read in Scripture. You know, how many days out of the Word does it take for you? Or maybe days in the Word. And we still act out of God's will that we read in Scripture apart from God's will at times. We read that we need to forgive, and we say, "Ah, give me some time, God. We we read that we need not get angry and sin. That doesn't work for me at this moment, God, you know. Doesn't work for me, not when I'm in traffic. Come on. So it's not very difficult for us to act separately from the will of God, is it? I hope you notice that in yourself. If, if you don't, then you've got another huge issue, and it's, it's pride. Right? I hope you notice how easy it is for you to stray, but not for Jesus. Jesus says we're in perfect harmony, perfect, perfect unity. What He wills, I will. What He does... I do. What I see Him do, That those are the things I'm doing. Perfect harmony. Perfect unity. Jesus is even more blatant in John 10, 30, where He says, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. I don't know how much clearer He can be. Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, huh? I don't know how much clearer that could possibly be. I and my Father are one. And what do the Jews do there when he says that in John chapter 10? It said the very next sentence says they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because he was claiming to be God. He's not claiming to be some super special prophet. He's claiming to be God. And that's why they wanted to kill him. They get it. They didn't accept Jesus, but they get it. They get his whole deal. He's saying he's God. But yet some critics today would say, Jesus never claimed that. I don't know what scripture they're reading. They pick up stones to stone him. It's kind of unbelievable that some today would say Jesus never claimed to be God and that his deity was was something that was made up by his followers years later. Jesus says that, that whatever the Father does, he does. And He does it just like the Father would do it. If the Father works on the Sabbath, well, you know Jesus is working on the Sabbath too. See, while, while Jesus is, is, is fully um, compliant with God's laws um, in His human nature, as a human, His divine nature, at the very same moment He's having this conversation, His divine nature is literally holding creation together. Sustaining all of creation. He's working on the Sabbath. That wasn't the only work He did on the Sabbath. He was holding creation together. Sustaining creation. My Father's been working and and, and so have I. If the Father creates, Jesus creates. The Father wills it, Jesus wills it. They're equal in works. Completely. Thirdly, Jesus says that He and His Father are equal in knowledge. 
Now verse 20 says that the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And He's going to show Him either greater things than healing this lame man of 38 years. Because of their perfect unity of love, Jesus and the Father, the Son knows everything that the Father knows. The Son knows everything that the Father knows. He has infinite knowledge. That's called omniscience, right? He knows everything, knows all things. Think of what a claim that is. You know, in in marriage, um, the world makes it really cute to keep secrets from each other, like on TV and stuff. Oh, yeah, it's nice and... It's, it's really cute when I find out 10 years later that my, that my wife slept with someone that I had no idea. Yeah, that's so cute. That's how it is on TV, right? It's all just a big joke. These secrets are really fun. And, and these secret bank accounts are really fun. If I can uh, sneak and do this thing without my wife knowing, that's, that's really cute and fun. Yeah. The world um, would say that anyway. I would say secrets are a destroyer of love and of trust and of intimacy. I always uh, tell couples in premarital counseling that everything has got to be on the table here. Everything. You may not have to tell me, but you have to tell each other. Everything is on the table. Full vulnerability is what leads to more perfect intimacy in marriage. Because it builds love and it builds trust. And I have no doubt my wife, she's an open book for me. There's nothing hidden, nothing in the dark ever. We are one. Well, Jesus is saying it's like that with Him and the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things. There are no secrets that God the Father keeps from God the Son. His mind is my mind, Jesus is saying. The Father's mind is completely comprehended by the Son. No sane person would make that claim. Unless, again, he was evil. No sane person would make that claim. The Jews would remember, of course, uh, verses like Isaiah 55, 9, where God says that His ways are so much higher than our ways as humans. That's every human. His plans are so much, His thoughts are so much higher than ours. They would remember um, the end of Isaiah 40, 28. At the end of that, um, it says that God's understanding is unsearchable. God's understanding is unsearchable. And yet here, Jesus is saying, yeah, um, the Father shows me all things. I get Him totally. We're we're in a, a perfectly intimate relationship built on love because God is love. That's our very essence. What a claim Jesus Makes here. We're equal in knowledge. I'm equal in knowledge to God the Father. And you know, as, a, as just a side note here, um, God will also show us things. And we're not going to know all things like Jesus until, until heaven, right? When we truly have uh, the mind of Christ perfectly. But God will show us things. He loves us and He wants to reveal more of Himself to you. Don't overlook the fact that if we seek Him, we will find Him. If we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. Some of us today are needing to hear from God in His Word, but we're neglecting the Bible, which is His primary means that He does that for us. 
his primary means of revealing himself to us. It's through his word. And yet, we want to hear from God so badly, but, but I, I don't know if I just want to like sit and read. I want you to do it in a different way, God. Well, I, I don't know what to tell you. God has given us His precious Word to reveal more of Himself to us. If we neglect that, what we're really saying is, I don't really want to hear from God. I don't really want to hear from God. It's just something I kind of say to make me feel better and kind of put God kind of on the stand. Something to think about. Um, Jesus says He's equal to God in knowledge. Of course, He didn't need Scripture. He wrote Scripture. The next claim that Jesus says is, um, that he's equal in honor to the Father. He's equal in honor to the Father. We're going to skip verse 21 for just a second and go to 22 and 23. Jesus says that judgment has been committed to him. We're going to come back to that too. Judgment has been committed to him that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Big statement, Jesus. Jesus is saying that the same honor, the same honor that you give the Father, that kind of honor belongs to the Son. If that's not a claim of deity, I don't know what a claim of deity would be. I mean, who can say that but God? I deserve the same exact honor that you give Him. No differences. Only God could say that. In fact, God in Isaiah 42 verse 8, He says this, My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. So just putting two and two together here, if God says He's not going to share His glory, and yet He does, in fact, share His glory with Jesus, then Jesus must be God. He has to be God. Otherwise, God is a liar. Or Jesus is the liar. He's not a good teacher. He's a liar. But Jesus, in the next section that we'll get to next time, is going to prove um, that His words have been clearly authenticated by God. And so we'll see that next time. Jesus deserves all honor, glory, and praise. I feel like that should get an amen. He deserves all honor, glory, and praise. All of these religions that claim to worship God without a right perspective of Jesus as God, the God, not a God, the God, all of those religions are straight from the enemy, straight from hell. There's no other way to say it. All religions ultimately, aside from biblical Christianity, are satanic at their core. All of them. There is no pure Muslim worship. It doesn't exist. There is no acceptable Mormon worship. That's not a real thing. There is no pleasing Jewish worship apart from honoring the Jewish Messiah. You neglect the Son, you neglect the Father. You disgrace the Son, you disgrace the Father. You misunderstand the Son, you misunderstand the Father. Completely. You've got it all wrong. It's all about Jesus. And that's why you can talk all you want to about God to this world. And they'll listen. You can talk all you want to about being spiritual. All you want, you can do that. But the moment you mention Jesus, 
things get awkward. Because Jesus is divisive. He says it has to be Him and no one else. He destroys this notion that no one is wrong. Whatever you believe, well, that's truth for you. That's truth. All truth is truth. Or all beliefs are truth, rather. Jesus <laughs> destroys that notion. You know, that's, that's the most hateful thing that the culture thinks you can do, is tell someone they're wrong. That's the most hateful thing in this culture, telling someone that they're wrong. And yet Jesus stands here and says, you're wrong. I am the way, the truth, the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Couldn't be more clear. And someday, one day, all people will acknowledge that. Philippians 2 Verses 9 through 11 tell us about that. It says, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him, that's Jesus, exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Yeah, we can say it. You see, that is your future this morning, whether you acknowledge it now or you don't acknowledge it now. That is your future. Jesus is equal to God in in, in receiving and deserving all honor. Notice in the Scriptures that um, when angels, there's a couple of times when angels, um, people try to worship them, right? And what do they say immediately? Oh, no, no, don't worship me. You worship God. Only God is worthy of worship. But Jesus never does that. He accepts worship as if he deserves worship because he is God. Hebrews 1.6 says that all the angels worship Him, Jesus. He's worthy of all honor. Now the fifth proof that Jesus is God is that Jesus claims to be equal to God in power over life and death. Power over life and death. So we'll go back and pick up verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. But He never claimed to be God, right? As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. He claims power over life and death. And it's both physical and spiritual life that he's talking about here. He goes on in verse verse 24 that, that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. He just calls it right there. He says, I decide who gets spiritual life. Jesus decides that. Jesus decides who gets everlasting life. And Jesus decides how that happens. And it happens through belief. It tells us right there. It happens through belief. We're going to need to remember that because in a few verses, he's going to say something that not be confusing to us. It happens through belief. Although the Jews felt really justified in themselves about being good people. The Bible is is very clear throughout that we are all spiritually dead people. We're not good people. 
We are separated from God, enemies of God, and there's nothing we can do about it in ourselves. You guys hear this every week. And that's a very gloomy message, but I only say it because there is hope. We're spiritually dead people. We're enemies of God. All of us under Adam have, have personally offended God when we sinned one time. That's all it took. Now, you've sinned lots more than that, and I have too. But it, it only took one. That's all it would have taken for you because the standard for heaven is Zero. And that's the only standard. That's a, a non-budging standard. Some people think God is going to grade on the curve like some of your teachers do. God is not going to grade on a curve. The standard is zero sins. Zero offenses towards God. Because He's worthy of that. And because His holiness demands that. He cannot be in the presence of our sin. And one sin against infinitely holy, holy, holy God makes us infinitely guilty. And Jesus says, I'm the only one who can change that. Jesus is. If you hear me and believe the one who sent me, the Father, I will give you life, he says. I'll fix your spiritual deadness. I'll wake you up. And there will be no judgment for you. You'll pass from death to life. Eternal separation from God to eternal joy with God. And it's only in Jesus. He controls spiritual Life, But not only that, he also claims power over physical life and death. Of course, he'll demonstrate that later when he raises Lazarus from the dead. He'll demonstrate that later when he raises himself from the dead. But he says it here too. Let's read verses 25 and 26 again. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted to the Son to have life in Himself. Jesus says the hour is coming, and it's even here now, when the dead uh, will hear the voice of the Son, and those who hear will live. Because the Father has given uh, Jesus life in Himself. Just as the Father has life in Himself. He says, I am the very source of life, both physical and spiritual. And the physical becomes even more clear when he starts talking about the physical resurrection that's coming, uh, which we're going to get to in a moment uh, in verses 28 through 30. But Jesus says He has life in Himself. Like God the Father, He is not a created being. Rather, He gives life because He is the source of life. He is the source of life. Now the Bible in the Old Testament is very clear that only God can give life to the dead. There are a few scriptures, Elijah, Elisha. There's a few examples where God used a vessel to raise someone from the dead, right? Elijah did that. But God did that, really. But no one could claim to be the source of that power. Jesus says, I'm the source of life. Yeah, God may have used Elijah to raise the dead, but I am the very source of life. God's not using me, I am God. That's what Jesus says of Himself. That's the difference. No man could ever claim that. And certainly not claim power to forgive sins. 
power to, to, to give spiritual life. That's even a whole other level of impossible. That is certainly reserved for God. And yet Jesus claims it. He's claiming to be God once again very, very clearly. And then there's one more, this final proof in this section that Jesus is God, is Jesus' claim that He is equal with the Father in judgment. Verse 22 says that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now, Again, the Old Testament is very clear on this issue too. In several places, that God is the judge. And immediately these Pharisees, I'm sure, would have thought of those. Wait a second, God is the only judge. God is the one who judges. If God is the judge though, and Jesus is going to be doing the judging... That would have to make Jesus God. Jesus is claiming to be God here. Now, Jesus did not come into the world primarily to convict, to condemn, or judge the world. But He came that the world through Him might be saved. Remember we read that earlier in John? The reason Jesus came to this earth is because we were so dead in our trespasses. Because we were so hopeless without a chance of fixing what was broken with our relationship with God. We had to have this perfect Lamb of God to take our sins upon Himself and, and, and get rid of them. We had to have it. He came so that salvation is possible. That's why Jesus came. But make no mistake, at His second coming, He will come as judge. This is the age of grace where you can come. But when He returns, it will be too late for you. The time for grace will be over. He'll be coming as judge. And verse 30 tells us that His judgment is righteous. It's just. And at first we might think, okay, good. But then we're going to have to take a step back and, and ask, what, what, wait a minute. What, I've actually offended God though. So if his, righteous, if his judgment is just, what does that mean for me? I'm in trouble. I'm condemned. That's why God can't just forgive everyone. If you've ever heard that, that argument, why, can't, why did He need Jesus? Why can't God just decide, I'm just going to forgive people? And that's an argument that is made even today in the emergent church in the emergent church that would hold hands with universalism. Everyone saved. Ridiculous. Nonsensical when you read the Bible. God can't just forgive everyone because His judgment is righteous. It's just, perfectly just. He's fair, that's why. He can't be unfair. You know, that's also why you can trust God with your need to have revenge on somebody. You can trust God with forgiveness. Because guess what? He does it better than you. He does revenge better than you could ever do it. So you let Him handle that. You let God handle the judgment. And you handle the forgiving. Because God's either, either going to forgive that person... In Jesus, He's going to judge them in Jesus who has paid for that sin or He's going to judge them and their sins are going to be on them. We can trust God 
when we want to hold a, ju- a grudge. We can trust the Lord to have much more perfect judgment than we ever could. Because His judgment is just. My judgment isn't always just. Jesus came so that our sins could be punished in Him. But if you have not believed on Him who took your punishment, if you have rejected His offer, you sit here today with your sins still on you. And that should scare you tremendously. That's a frightening, frightening thing. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God, of the living God. Because Christ's judgment is righteous, the punishment will fit the crime. And the crime is blatant disobedience against the Creator of the universe who has loved you enough to make a way to pay for your sin. And you still shake your fist. That's the crime. Jesus says in verse 27 that the Father has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man was Jesus' most common way to refer to Himself. He loved that title for Himself, evidently. And we've talked about it already a couple of times, but it's only found once in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7. Where God, in that passage called the Ancient of Days, God, the Father, hands over a kingdom to the Son of Man. And He says that the Son of Man would have all dominion and glory and that His kingdom would never end. Now imagine God transferring His kingdom to anyone less than God Himself. Imagine God transferring His kingdom to some mere human. Oh, that's absurd. Of course not. God would only hand His kingdom to God. That's the only one that can be trusted with His kingdom. And Jesus says there's a day coming when the Son of Man is going to speak and all the dead are going to come out of the graves to be judged. This will be a physical resurrection where the bodies will meet their souls already in eternity. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, so the moment we die, we go. Our souls go. Our bodies remain in the the grave. What he's talking about here is that moment of physical resurrection where our bodies will be reunited with our souls and changed. A physical resurrection. And there's going to be two parts. A resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. And every single person on the planet who has ever lived will be in one of those two resurrections. Without exception. You can't weasel your way out of that. Now, this resurrection of life, first of all, I believe uh, when you put all of Scripture together, will come in different phases. It's going to come at the rapture to those believers from Pentecost until the rapture. Right before the millennium for the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. So right after the tribulation, right before the millennium. And then for those who die in the millennium, probably immediately. And so that's a lot of things I just said. And so I I don't have time to explain all of that. If you want more explanation on that, go back and look at our our study in 1 Corinthians 15 because we went over this in in some detail there. Um, But that's the resurrection of life. And he says it's going to be for those who have done good. Does that trouble you? That's for those who have done good? Is Jesus contradicting himself here? I thought it was all about belief. Didn't he just say it was about belief? Why is he saying this? Well, of course it is about belief. Jesus affirms that 
many, many times in the Gospel of John, um, almost on every page. So, no, he's not talking about literally you're saved by your works. But we are judged by our works. We are judged by our works. And the only good work, which is not really even a work, is faith in Christ. And if we have true faith in Christ, that will always, always, always result in good works. It will not result in perfection, but it will result in good works. If you're truly saved, you will do good works without exception. If we truly love God, it will be evident from our lives. That's all over the New Testament. That's all over the book of John. We've already talked about that several times. And those who are a part of that resurrection will be clothed in white because their sins have been washed away by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and will be with Christ forever and ever. But there's another resurrection, and that's the resurrection of condemnation for those who, he says, have done evil. We are going to be judged on our works. Fortunately, for those of us who are in Christ, it's going to be on Jesus Christ's works of perfection and not our own works. His work covers our works. But for those not in Jesus, they're going to be judged by their works. And it's funny how the Bible just kind of puts you in one of those two categories. You're either with Jesus this morning or you're evil before God. That's what he says. With Jesus or evil. You've done evil. And for those in that that second resurrection, the second death, as Revelation puts it, they will be judged by their works. You'll be judged by your own ability to keep God's perfect law. We've already addressed that. You failed. And ultimately, all in that resurrection will not be able to pass the test, will suffer condemnation forever apart from God. You didn't want God on this earth. He's not going to force Himself on you in eternity. People often ask, why would God send people to hell? How is that right? Well, the Bible is clear that we were destined for hell, all of us, because of our own sin. It's our fault. Don't put that on God. It is our fault, our own sin. We are destined for hell. But God in His great mercy and grace and love for us performed for us the only possible solution for paying for our sin, which must be done if we are to spend eternity with holy God. It's not hell that is unfair. It is heaven that is unfair. But heaven is just. It's it's unfair from our perspective. But it's just because our sins were punished in Jesus, the perfect one. So God maintains His perfect justice, right? But man, for me, what a deal for me. That's not a fair deal for me. All I've done is sin. And yet I get heaven? That's unfair. We deserve no chance. And yet here Jesus is even today, holding out His hand to sinners, all sinners. If you need to come this morning, please don't wait any longer. As we kind of wrap up here, go to Him now in prayer. Repent of your sin and turn to the Savior. Next time Jesus is going to show us all the witnesses to Himself that prove that His word that He just said is true. Jesus is, in fact, God. And He will be back someday to judge the earth. Now, for us as Christians, what's the relevance of that? When we we read passages that are very deep theologically, like this one, um, and, and it gives us such a high and appropriate view of Jesus, 
But we can fall into the trap of thinking that, that Jesus is just so set apart. He's just, he's just such a distant God. Right? Because he is, I mean, this gives us a very high view of who Jesus is, which is right. But it, we can fall into this trap of thinking he's distant because he's so much better than us. But I want to remind us this morning that this is not the case at all. The same Jesus who is the exact image of God, who has all authority, who will come back to raise all from the dead and judge, this is the Jesus who promises life to you. And you can count on that. This is the Jesus who makes all those promises that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This is the Jesus who holds out His hand and says, Come to Me, all who are weary, I will give you rest. This is the Jesus who says, I have great joy and peace that I want to give to you. This is the Jesus who says, I've been through what you have been through, quite literally. And I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. This high Jesus, holy Jesus, set apart Jesus, is that same Jesus who is close. He is near. We must. It's essential that we have a very high and holy view of our Lord, but let's not forget that even in His set-apartness, He is near to us. If you want Him to be near this morning, He will be near this morning. He wants relationship with us for some reason. He wants to walk through life with us for some reason. He desires even that we could be His friend. Jesus, this Jesus, who is God. What an amazing truth that overshadows all all of the false claims from other religions out there. And as we close this morning, I want to take time to, to consider this God who is far, far above us and yet so near to us. Even dwelling within us. Finding His residence within us as Christians. And as we consider that, let's, let's give our cares to Him this morning. Knowing that He is God, He can handle it. Knowing that He cares for you. Knowing that He's been there. Knowing that He's omniscient. Knowing that He has every answer. Knowing that He is the source of all life. Knowing that He is the source of all truth. Let's give our cares to Him this morning as we close. I want to give you a few moments. If you need to come to Jesus in repentance and faith, please don't delay. There's no magic prayer. I don't want, to, I don't want our faith to be in a prayer. But you pray to God right now and repent of your sin that has nailed Jesus to the cross. And you tell the Lord, I, I am yours now. I surrender all of my being to you. Will you please save me? And He will. He will. And then you let somebody here know about that today before you leave. Let us know so that we can celebrate with you, so that we can show you the next steps on the Christian journey, and so that we can be here with you as a family. I'm going to give you a few moments um, just to do whatever you need to do right now with, with, with Christ and then I'm going to close and uh, we'll probably take a a short break here and, and then have our business meeting. Lord, we just come to you this morning and uh, we're in awe of who you are. And Lord, we're even more in awe that in who you are, you still want relationship with us. That you desire people to worship you in spirit and truth. You allow us to be your friend. God, there's nothing that compares to this. Forgive us 
when we go chasing after cheap things, Lord, that will not satisfy. And we don't find our being and our identity in you alone, Jesus. God, help us to do that. I pray that um, you would just use this word from John 5 this morning. Use your words to speak to hearts, God. Use your words to convict, Lord. Use your words to save. And God, we, we're just so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful that you've sent Jesus to pay our penalty. I'll never understand why you did that, Lord. We're so grateful, Father. I pray that our lives <clears throat> would just be a testimony to that to the gratefulness, to the thankfulness we have for what you've done, Lord. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.